Wednesday, August 28th, 2013, episode number 59 of the Football Nation Today podcast with Alex Reamer on footballnation.com. Episode number 59 of Football Nation Today podcast, hosted by yours truly, Alex Reamer, here on this Wednesday, August 28th. We are roughly one week away from the start of the 2013 NFL regular season. The unofficial start of fall is upon us with Labor Day this upcoming Monday, college kids moving back into school this upcoming weekend. Hard to believe it, but the fall is just about here, and with it comes the NFL Last week on the show, we spent some time previewing the NFC, gave you a general overview of that conference with Dave Holcomb, host of the Monday Morning Huddle podcast, right here at footballnation.com. This week, in the first on segment, we turn our sights to the AFC, and uh, Sal Capaccio of Sports Radio, 550 AM, WGR in Buffalo, and I sit down, talk about the AFC. Sal is one of the smartest football guys around. He, of course, covers the Bills on a daily basis, so he started off the interview talking about the Bills and their tumultuous preseason. First, uh, they were all excited about E.J. Manuel. Then he's out. Then Kevin Cobb, the veteran backup, is out with a head injury, a potentially career-ending head injury. And now they will rely on an undrafted rookie quarterback with the last name of Tool to start Week 1 against the Patriots. Uh, Speaking of the word Tool, uh, that's a word that I think aptly describes Rex Ryan in his post-game press conference performance last weekend. So Sal and I talk about the Jets' QB mess. And I think the central issue is with the Jets this season and why everything else besides that issue is white noise. And with the Bills and Jets in turmoil, the Dolphins still unproven, is the AFC East once again the Patriots' division for the taking. Sal and I will discuss that. We'll also talk about the AFC North and whether or not this is the year. The Bengals will claim the divisional crown with Pittsburgh's health concerns and all the changes Baltimore has undergone this offseason. The AFC South is in Indianapolis's division this year. Are they going to build off an 11-5 season? Or was that record more of a fluke than anything else? And also, have the Texans peaked? Or are they set to be legit Super Bowl contenders this season? And I think we can all agree the Broncos may, will win the AFC West. They are legitimate Super Bowl contenders, but are there flaws? Are there potentially fatal flaws with the Denver Broncos? Sal Capaccio of 550 AM Sports Radio WGR in Buffalo and I discuss. Then coming up in the second down segment, we take a look at one of the bigger off-field football stories of the week. And this week, it's a football slash media story. ESPN recently pulled its support from a joint project with PBS's Frontline about the NFL's handling of head injuries. Why did they pull their support? Please, ignore John Skipper, ignore the noise from ESPN. They pulled their support because they have a multi-billion dollar relationship with the NFL and got cold feet. Why they got their cold feet? Well, that's up for debate. But what's not for the debate is the fact that ESPN is an entertainment network first, news network second. And the fact that people are still surprised by this is beyond puzzling to me. So we'll examine that story a little further in the second down segment. Then the third down segment, big up or slow down segment, debating topics such as the Jets QB situation and whether Rex Ryan is the biggest problem there or whether just a lack of talent overrides everything else. The NFLPA has filed a grievance on behalf of Aaron Hernandez to force the Patriots to pay him his offseason workout bonuses. Is that a defensible move by the NFLPA? 
we'll discuss. And then Saints outside linebacker Will Smith out for the rest of the season with a knee injury. Will that affect New Orleans' playoff aspirations? Then the fourth down segment, it's the Reamer rant. Typically this time of year, I will rant and rave against fantasy football and this country's obsession with fantasy sports. Well, this year, after I partook in back-to-back fantasy drafts on Sunday night, I have changed my tune. I've come around, you fantasy geeks. I'm going to discuss that briefly in the fourth down segment. It's Football Nation Today, back after this with Sal Capaccio of WGR. Welcome back, Football Nation, today as we uh, preview the AFC. Last last week was the NFC. This week, the AFC with Sal Capaccio. You know him from 550 AM, WGR in Buffalo. Sal, how are you? I'm pretty good, Alex. Good to talk to you always, my man. Yeah, good to talk to you as well, sir. You're in tight with Sal Capaccio from a- uh, 550 AM, WGR in Buffalo here on Football Nation today. Now, Sal, let's start off with the Bills, with this AFC preview, because beginning of the year, the calendar year, Ralph Wilson relinquishes day-to-day control of the franchise. They're bringing a new head coach in Doug Marone. EJ Manuel looks great in his first preseason game. Now, though, roughly a week, uh, two weeks away from the start of the regular season. A week away, rather. week and a half. However long it is. Manuel has knee surgery. Kevin Cobb has a potentially career-ending concussion. Undrafted rookie Jeff Toole may start week one. Quarterback Stephen Gilmore out with an injury. Jarius Bird sounds less than thrilled. To be back in Buffalo on a franchise tender. What is the feeling up there now, Sal, as the Bills are on the cusp of week one against the Pats? Well, let's uh, – where do I start? Man, there's so much there. <laughs> so much has happened in the, even in the past uh, week. It's unbelievable. A, rundown, a little rundown to see. Well, let me, let me go back to what you started off with back in January. Uh, when they fired Chan Gailey and Ralph Wilson Jr., who's in his 90s, right. uh, relinqu- relinquished day-to-day control, turned it over to Russ Brandon, who was the CEO. Now he's the president and CEO, added that title on. I don't know if a lot changed really in the regard of – you know, Ralph not running things because he was over 90 anyway. But all that said, it kind of represented a new culture. It really did because one of the knocks on the Bills over the last many, many years is they were always old. They were never younger and never really uh, advanced with the rest of the league as far as uh, having younger people in their organization, run their organization with fresh ideas and fresh faces. That changed. Russ Brandon's in his mid-40s. He's now the president. He went out and hired a college coach in Doug Marone who's not young, not old. You know, he Doug Marone's in his late 40s now as well. So that changed as well. And then Doug Marone hired a 33-year-old offensive coordinator in Nathaniel Hackett and an aggressive young defensive coordinator in Mike Pettin. So all of that put together, Alex, adds, you know, new blood, new culture, a lot of optimism in Buffalo. And then they do something they've never did in the history of their franchise, and that is draft a quarterback with their first selection of the draft. They had done it in the first round before like Jim Kelly or J.P. Lossman, but those were always the second pick they had of the draft. So all that added up, there were a lot of optimism. As you said, EJ goes into the year. He's looking really good. I'm not saying he looked like Russell Wilson or Andrew Luck or RG3, but he looked really good the first two weeks. A lot of hope and optimism from that spot. Maybe they finally figured it out, got their franchise guy. He wakes up with swelling in his knee after preseason game number two. They have to have some sort of knee procedure. We're guessing it's a knee drain. We don't know. He's out two weeks. So in, in comes Kevin Cobb. Uh, Kevin Cobb has to uh, basically take the reins. It's his job to lose. Suffers the concussion, like you said, maybe career ending. Now they turn to Jeff Toole, possibly, to get ready for the New England Patriots in week number one, who would be the first undrafted rookie quarterback to ever start in the NFL week one since 1967 when the draft began. I like Jeff Toole. He, had a, he has a nice skill set. 
Uh, he had a good career at Washington State, uh, but, you know, he's an undrafted free agent for a reason. And, you know, if you have to go into the New England Patriots game with Jeff Tool as your quarterback, you better plan on having C.J. Spiller and Fred Jackson run the ball 40 times and keep it away from Brady and try and knock him on his butt. And that's the only way you can win. As far as Stephon Gilmore, yes, uh, fractured wrist. You know, as much as the quarterback position hurts, that injury hurts more than anything because – a, they're not very good behind Stephon Gilmore as it is, Alex. They're, they're, they're just not good at that spot. And B, he's just quite simply their best defensive player. He's a stud, and they need that guy. And you look at the first two weeks. You got Brady, and you got Cam Newton coming to Buffalo the first two weeks. Rolling in with those guys uh, is going to be very tough. Jarris Bird, he did report the, uh, obviously, like you said, doesn't seem like he's too thrilled. So I think that to answer your question of the long of it and the short of it is we went from a lot of hope and optimism and new culture to, oh, my God, here we go again within the matter of about two weeks. Well, at least you're not the Jets, Sal, because the culture is a disaster there. And I think, look, the, the, the summary of it is this. When the general manager doesn't hire the coach, things are destined to fail. I mean, I think that's the most important relationship in sports. You need to be on the same pa page there. And the central issue with the Jets is Jeff Fidzik and Rex Ryan aren't. I think it's as simple as that. I agree with you. It's a great point. Um, and, and you can tell that Rex Ryan even makes mention of that sometimes in these press conferences like, well, you know, uh, it's it's call or, you know, those are the decisions that, you know, we make uh, side by side. He never says like, hey, I'll make the call I and, and you know, I'll, I'll take the bullets for it because those are kind of the way Rex Ryan things he would have handled uh, in years past. But you can tell that that's just not a very good situation there. And I'm not so sure that uh, Rex Ryan – I, I'm not going to say he's sabotaging his own future, but I think he kind of knows that this is it for him in New York because they're not very good. And the guy that's running the team, it's he's not his choice. So maybe he's just kind of setting himself up for failure, at least, you know, not as motivated to be as successful. Is it, it, it's, it's a disaster, Sal. And if I'm a Jets fan, I'm really getting on Woody Johnson, who the only plausible reason I can come up with as to why Rex Ryan is still coaching this season is because Johnson doesn't want to pay him to sit at home. I mean, why else would you have a general manager and a coach who aren't co who don't coexist? It doesn't make any sense to me. And like I said, that's the issue here. And everything else from Rex Ryan standing sideways in the press conference to I'm sure the litany of other controversies we'll have this season. Um, I think it's just white noise because the central issue is that. And to me, the only reason why Ryan is still there is because Woody Johnson doesn't want to pay him if he's not coaching. Yeah, it's absolutely. I'm sure that's very true. And their quarterback situation now just seems even uh, worse off to make this entire situation because now what's wrong with Sanchez? Are they going to roll with Geno Smith? Who in the organization wants Smith? Who in the organization wants Sanchez? That's an internal fight. And neither of them have really shown an ability to be able to win. I mean, Mark Sanchez did when he came into the league uh, his first two years. And then all of a sudden, you know, uh, last couple of years, not as good. And now here's Geno Smith, who's looked basically awful yeah, his terrible. first couple preseason games. Yeah, I mean, and the thing is, too, Sal, last point on the Jets, it's just, I look at the system Rex Ryan runs, it's just not a modern-day NFL system. You know, I think the knock you can have on Ryan as a coach more than anything else is that Sanchez has not improved under his watch. I don't think this is a, uh, an atmosphere for Geno Smith to improve either. Um, it'll be really interesting to see if Rex Ryan makes it through the season. I think, Sal, if the Jets start off, let's say, 3-5, and five, 
it wouldn't surprise me if Vidzik at that point got the green light to fire him. I know he would want to because to me it just is a disaster if he stays on for a full season because like you said, Idzik probably has more of a long-term view and at 3-5 and five, he'd probably maybe push Rex Ryan to pull Sanchez, start Smith, again assuming all are healthy, but Ryan may say, hey, at 3-5, and five, I mean, I'm coaching for my job. We could still finish 8-8, eight and 9-7, eight, and seven, maybe sneak in as a wild card. It would, it, it would just be a disaster to me if when the coach has a short-term view and the general manager, of course, has more of the long-term view. Lame duck. I mean, that's yeah. just the way you got to look at it. He's a, he's a lame duck coach. He's a he's he's a dead coach walking, if you will. And I think he knows it. And that's the shame of it, because, you know, Rex has done some good things with that organization. Controversies aside, uh, he's he there's been some moments where you say, oh, my God, what's he doing? But he also took him to two AFC championship games, you know, in back to back years. So it's a tough situation. But in this business, I think everybody knows on top of that, they're just not good. I mean, look no. at that roster. The, the roster is not good. They they don't have good players. Who's their skill position guys? Are they going to hand the ball off to Chris Ivory all year? I mean, come on. <laughs> so because of all this turmoil in the AFC East, Sal, a lot of Patriots fans and followers are convinced the Pats will once again run away with the division. I know Miami improved this offseason, at least on paper, but we'll see about Ryan Tannehill, and we'll see how that all comes together. Do you think anything can hold the Pats back this season, or do you think they're going to waltz to another division uh, division win? Yeah, I think one thing can hold him back, and it's the same thing that can always hold him back, and that is if uh, their you know mid thirties year old quarterback, who's a first ballot Hall of Famer, gets hurt. And I think as you get older, you have more of a propensity to maybe have those little nagging injuries bother you a little bit. And maybe one shot can put you out more than it never did before. We saw the scare in training camp with Tom Brady. So, you know, if Brady, somehow somebody rolls up on him again, you know, maybe he misses three or four games. Maybe that's just enough to allow a backdoor by the Miami Dolphins. Or if somehow, you know, EJ Manuel turns out to be a really good rookie quarterback, the Bills or someone like that, or for them to uh, only, you know, get into the playoffs and then, uh, you know, losing the first round again or something like that. But I think that's the only thing. I, I, I wouldn't be, I, I wouldn't be all that thrilled with what I've seen from the other players outside of Brady in this preseason for the Patriots. I mean, they look young. Last week, the the four turnovers in the first five possessions. Um, I, I like what they're doing, trying to run the ball with Stephen Ridley. I do, but but I just think they're kind of an average team outside of Brady. Mm. Hey, we, we we talk we talk on on the air on, on WGR and uh, in the morning show when I was doing the show with Jeremy last week. And Jeremy said, and I think he's, he's absolutely right. He said, if you compared 52 men to 52 men, what difference really is there between the Patriots and most other teams in the division? But if you take that 53rd guy, there's such a drop off between Brady to the next quarterback. That's obviously the big difference. Right. I mean, the thinking up here, Sal, on the Pats is, and I agree with this line of thinking, is I think at the end of the season, the Patriots will have a top 10, if not a top five offense. I think that's inevitable with Brady. We saw that in 2006. And I would argue this receiving core is better than the 06 receiving core, which featured Rishay Caldwell and Doug Gabriel as the top two pass catchers. And this year, if Rob Gronkowski comes back, I just think on paper it's a better offense this year than it was in 06. To me, Sal, the big question with the Pats, as it always is, is the defense. And yeah. this is the year. This defense has to take that step forward because the interesting thing about this defense sound or Bill Belichick recently is, is they haven't been as good as a, as they should be on paper. And that sounds weird for a Belichick coach team, but there's a lot of first, second, third round picks on this defense who have now been in the league three or four years. And it's time for them to really take that step forward. That is the big question this season. Yeah, and it has been, and they've had a lot of uh, you know issues in their secondary over the last several years. They've moved guys corner to safety. They picked up to leave things like that. And when you do things like that, I can't. I, can't, I think it kind of speaks volumes about what you think yourself about your own team. So all of that said, you know, and, and here, even in Buffalo, we look as bad as the Bills really were last year. 
twice they basically had the Patriots on the ropes. Now, in Buffalo, obviously, the Patriots came back quickly in the second half, but the Bills jumped out. They scored 28 points within the by the middle of the third quarter. Then they go to New England, and the Bills were marching down the field to try and win the game, uh, both teams scoring in the 30s. So all that said, yeah, I mean, they can be beaten on defense. It still, to me, revolves around Brady. As long as Brady's healthy, they're going to win 11 games go to the playoffs because the division's just not that good and everybody else in the division is still trying to play catch up. But if Brady, if something were to, you know, happen to him and I think we say this every year, but as you get older, you have to kind of remind yourself of it. If something were to happen to him, I, I don't see Ryan Mallett stepping in and taking that team to 10 wins. Not like Matt Castle did back in 08. Yeah, certainly not Tebow. We know that. Right. Um, I don't know how awful he was, Sal, until you get to watch him in person. It's really a special thing to see him right <laughs> the ball into the ground up close and personal. Um, Hey, Sal, the Baltimore Ravens, how much worse are they this year than they were last year, obviously, with all the changes they went through this offseason and losing Dennis Pitta at the start of training camp? I, I think they're worse, obviously. I mean, they were a Super Bowl champion, but right. here's the thing about the Ravens. Uh, they have such a great culture, and they have such a great structure in the organization, and such a really great head coach now in John Harbaugh that I think they're just going to get better as the year goes on. You know, They'll learn, they'll adapt, they'll coach those guys up, uh, they'll infuse that culture. The Ravens remind me a lot of the 90s to early 2000s Steelers and then maybe mid, you know, last several years where every time you thought they were dead, they came back because that's just the culture that they breed. And that's what the Ravens have become. It doesn't matter who it is. Ozzie Newsom is such a great general manager. He'll find players. He will find players. And then John Harbaugh will find a way to get those guys prepared. And they still have Joe Flacco. They still have Ray Rice. I think they'll be okay. I don't know if they're going to you know, be the team they were last year. I doubt it. Maybe it'll take them a little bit longer than they want to be able to be uh, in that type of position. But I, I still think the Baltimore Ravens are, are a playoff contender, and I still think they have enough talent and definitely enough coaching in that team to contend. Here's my theory on the Ravens, Sal. I'm curious to get your uh, expertise on this. I think all, a lot of the transitions they went through this offseason, they wanted to go through. I yes. think they wanted to remake that defense because they had the money to go out and then sign Elvis Doomerville, Michael Huff. I mean, I think maybe they wanted to change in the locker room because you heard the reports, what was it, last November, that there was almost a mutiny there against John Harbaugh. I mean, Bernard Pollard has the reputation of being a locker room lawyer type. I don't know, Sal. I think a lot of the changes there were actually – um, made on purpose. I don't think the Ravens were backed into a corner and did it because of the cap. I think a lot of it was intentional. Yeah, and, and here's the thing. It makes it a lot easier to make those changes when you win a Super Bowl. You can sell anything. Once you win a Super Bowl for one year, you can sell anything you want to your fans. You could say, look, we gave you the ring. We gave you the Lombardi trophy. Now we have to kind of pull the reins back and kind of regroup here because if we don't, we're going to be in for a, a, a longer rebuild than we want when those guys be, uh, become up, you know, their contracts and things like that. So, yeah, I agree with you. I absolutely do. But it made it so much easier by the simple fact that they won the Super Bowl. Right. Uh, is the AFC North now uh, Cincinnati's division to lose, or do you think Baltimore, as they improve uh, throughout the season, will have something to say about it? And Pittsburgh as well, if they stay healthy, do you think they are still the class of the division? I'm, I am I want to say that it's Cincinnati's division, but I think recent history tells us that can you ever really claim that about Cincinnati? I mean, can, <laughs> because they can't take that. They can't take the reins and run with it, and you give it to them every year. Here you go. Here you go. You got it. Like, you have Andy Dalton now. You have A.J. Green. You have a defense. By the way, I think their defense is really good, Excellent. and I think they have talent there, and, and they're going to be another really good defense this year. It is Cincinnati's division. I think they're the most talented team in the division, but two things hold them back. 
their coach, number one, Marvin Lewis, who, by the way, I think is a better coach now than he used to be. I think he's gotten better with age and has handled that structure of that organization better. But I still have seen nothing that shows me that he's a guy that can really carry a team once you get into the playoffs. And I still think Andy Dalton is he's okay. I mean, he's not a guy that I would necessarily trust to take my team to a Super Bowl. Just a guy that maybe can get me to the next level, which is what he's done so far. He's 0-2. Right. You talk about how the game we're talking about Sal Capaccio, 550 AM, WGR in Buffalo. Uh, Sal, you talk about how every year we want to give the Bengals the keys to the AFC North, and he never really seemed to take that next step. How about the Houston Texans? This is a team that over the past couple seasons we've given the keys to the AFC South, win the, uh, make the playoffs the past couple years, win a playoff game last year, then get spanked by the Patriots in the divisional round. My question with the Texans is now, Sal, have they peaked? Can we expect more from them this season, or have they reached their ceiling as a franchise with this group? I think they have, Alex. Um, I agree. I, I have always been the uh, Houston's my team next year. Johnny, uh, Johnny Vaughn on our uh, Rest in Peace Johnny on our NFL Now podcast, he used to always make fun of me because every single year I'd tell him, Texans, Texans year. This is the year. The Texans are going to you know, finally get over that hump. And I think they finally got over that hump, but then we saw that they really weren't able to do much with it when it was all said and done. I mean, you know, they go to the playoffs uh, last year, and uh, we saw what happened there. But I, I think this is it. You know, you talk about Arian Foster it seems like he's finally, you know, breaking down a little bit. He's had a lot of carries. Matt Schaub, is he really a guy who you can trust? Kind of like Andy Dalton. I think he's more talented passer than Andy Dalton, but once you get to the playoffs, is he that guy that can carry you? Andre Johnson looks like a stud every year at the beginning of the year. Then he misses a few games because of injuries. So, um, and then, you know, their defense has always been kind of uh, hit or miss. They, they they have some really good players, obviously, in J.J. Watt, and they can do some really nice things. But sometimes they have a game where you're like, wow, what, what happened there? Remember the New England game? Mm. You know, so so I, I do. I think that this is uh, this is it for Houston. And I'd be surprised if they went. They're not going to win 12 games. In fact, I would say they'd be around a uh, a nine win team this year, which is a three game drop off from last right. year. But the thing is, South, the AFC South, I don't know if I'm a believer in the Colts this year. I mean, Andrew Luck showed a lot of poise, but I look at his stats. He completed less than 55% of his throws, had a QB rating of 76.5. They also had a minus 30 point differential last season. Was last year's 11-5 record a fluke or a performance to build on for Indianapolis? Boy, it's a great question. I think it's all about Andrew Luck. You know, if Andrew Luck continues to be the quarterback we think he can be, and, you know, he did have... Uh, he had a really good first year, but people, he did turn the ball over a lot, but you know, rookie quarterbacks do that. Um, Andrew, that's, that's a good team. I'm not so sure if, uh, they're near as good as they were last year. Here's the thing about them. They won a lot of close games last year. You know, they won a lot of like one point games. I think they set a record at one point for winning three or four games in a row like that. Something like that. The NFL's version of the Orioles from last year. Yeah. So there's got to be, I guess what you'd say a regression to the mean, if you're doing a, uh, you know, analytics, uh, advanced stats type of deal there. But they're still talented, and they have they have guys. They have Andrew Luck. It's all about quarterback for them, and they have T.Y. Hilton who can catch the ball. I, I think they're still going to be a pretty good team. I don't know if we'll get the exact same results we got last year out of them, obviously. But uh, you know, I still think they're a team that can certainly contend for the playoffs, especially considering they're in, an, in a division where I think is kind of up for grabs, and it can really go either way. Final a few points here. Again, we're talking with Sal Capaccio of WGR Radio up in Buffalo. I think we can all agree the Broncos win the AFC West, maybe finish with the best record in what seems to be a wide-open AFC, but poke some holes in them for me, Sal. We like to be negative on the show, and we can, pessimists by nature. So tell me some holes the Broncos have as they enter this season. Well, who exactly is going to be their you know go-to running back when they have to run, down, run the clock out? 
know, who's going to be the guy that uh, Peyton Manning turns around and hands the ball to? Is it is it going to be Monte Ball? Is it going to be no Sean Moreno? I don't know. I, I and, and look what happened last year. If you you know last year Manning made that big big mistake. You know in the uh, in the playoffs they don't have that one go to guy that when you really need to you know the NFL is a quarterback league. We know that it's all about passing. But when you get inside the final three four minutes and you got to bang out a couple first downs, yeah, you, know, you need to do that. And then here's the other thing. Let's remember. I mean they're going to be missing Von Miller for six games. They already lost Elvis Dumerville. No way are they going to be able to get after the passer the way they did last year. And last year, they got off the get, got after the passer so well, it put their offense in a lot better positions. Well, this year, maybe, you know, they don't, they're not able to do that. So now uh, it, it, other teams, they're not going to be so one-dimensional because the offense won't get up on them, you know, by 14 points in the second half. So now all of a sudden, other teams have to start throwing the ball. So I think those are your two biggest issues. Who's their number one go-to running back? I still need to see that. And what's going to happen on the defensive side of the ball as far as getting after the passer? Yeah, I think their defense sucks, Sal. Quite frankly, huh, I mean, there no, you really, go. I mean, I mean, I, I think Baltimore ate them alive last season. Champ Bailey's beginning this year hurt. He's another year older, and he looked like he was 55 last year. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I think the Broncos will waltz into the playoffs because it's a real weak division. I think a similar thing to the Patriots in the AFC East. But come the postseason, Sal, we've learned balance still wins, and I just don't think the Broncos are a balanced team at all. I really don't. Well, I mean, don't count out the Kansas City Chiefs. I think that they've made a lot of really good changes there. And I know that Alex Smith is still their quarterback now. So you have to kind of say, like, well, what's going to happen there? But, you know, Andy Reid's a good coach. He he knows what he's doing. And they have Jamal Jamal Charles there, who's a a very good running back. And I think they have some nice parts on defense as well. I think the Kansas City Chiefs could be a team that could surprise a lot of people and maybe be that one team. You know, a lot every year one team makes a nice jump. And I think Kansas City might be that team this year we can look at. All right, Sal Capaccio, you know him from AM five uh, from 550 AM WGR Sports Radio up there in Buffalo. Listen to him sports Saturdays, Saturday afternoons, and also throughout the week filling in various time slots. Sal, always a pleasure. We'll talk to you soon. That was fun. Thank you, Alex. I appreciate it anytime, I'm in. Big thanks again go out to Sal Capaccio of Sports Radio 550 AM WGR in Buffalo for taking the time joining me on the show today. As I said in the opening, Sal is one of the smartest football guys around, a frequent guest on the show And we thank him for taking some time and helping us uh, with a general preview of the AFC. Now, second down segment this week, as I also said in the opening, taking a look at this story, which ESPN recently pulled its support from a joint project with PBS's Frontline about the NFL's handling of head injuries. I am reading this directly from the New York Times, which came out with this story late last week. Quote, on Thursday, meaning last Thursday, ESPN, which has spent heavily in recent years to build its investigative reporting team, abruptly ended its affiliation with Frontline, a public affairs television series that was weeks away, uh, that was weeks from showing a jointly produced two-part investigative project about the NFL's contentious handling of head injuries. The divorce came a week after the NFL voiced its displeasure with the documentary at a lunch between League and ESPN executives, according to two people with direct knowledge of the situation. Uh, The meeting took place uh, near the league's Midtown Manhattan headquarters, according to the two people who requested anonymity because they were prohibited by their supervisors, uh, superiors rather, from discussing the matter publicly. It was a table of four, Roger Goodell, commissioner of the NFL, Steve Bornstein, president of the NFL Network, John Skipper, ESPN president, and John Wildhack, ESPN's executive vice president for production. The meeting was combative, the people said with league officials conveying the irritation with the direction of the documentary, which is expected to describe a narrative that has been captured in various news reports over the past decade. 
the league turning a blind eye to evidence that players were sustaining brain trauma on the field that could lead to profound long-term cognitive disability. So essentially, great reporting for the New York Times, and ESPN pulls out his frontline documentary because the NFL wanted him to. They didn't like how the documentary portrays the league. ESPN and the NFL, multi-billion dollar business partners, and ESPN ultimately succumbed to the NFL's wishes. Now, recent reports have surfaced this week saying that Skipper and ESPN bailed out because they were afraid of the sensationalistic trailer they saw for the documentary, and they thought the trailer sensationalized the story, uh, which, you know, is right in line with how ESPN has operated over the past number of years, because we know ESPN never sensationalizes anything. They never make too big a deal out of anything. They never hype anything up. ESPN and sensationalism, oh my god, that might be the first time those two words have ever been said in the same sentence. ESPN sensationalizing? Nah, never. They never do anything in a sensationalistic manner. So of course they'd pull out here after a sensationalistic trailer from PBS, the network that is known for sensationalizing everything. Oh, what baloney, huh? I mean, come on, you're to, you're to tell me that PBS was too sensationalistic for ESPN, and that's why John Skipper wanted his network to pull out? What? Are you kidding me? I think it's obvious here. ESPN didn't want to upset, arguably, its most important business partner, or portray its most important business partner, partner in an unflattering light. ESPN is not a sports news organization. It's an entertainment television network first, news network second, as pretty much all major television networks are. Even news organizations often trade favorable coverage for access, and that's what ESPN is doing here. You know, we have this debate a lot around these parts, especially when the Bruins are in the midst of a Stanley Cup run, as they were this past spring and earlier this summer. Uh, you know, people who always complain, oh, how come I don't see any Bruins highlights at the top of SportsCenter? How come they only devote three minutes to Stanley Cup Finals and 25 minutes to LeBron James and the Miami Heat? Well, it's simple. ESPN doesn't cover hockey because they don't have the broadcasting rights to it. They cover the X Games, for example, because they have the broadcasting rights to it. ESPN, like all television networks, I should say like all commercial television networks, is in the business of pumping up its own programming. And that's the reason why they pulled out of this frontline documentary on the NFL's poor handling of head injuries over the past number of decades. ESPN and the NFL are multi-billion dollar business partners. ESPN does not have a business interest in portraying the NFL in a negative light which this documentary probably will do. So, of course, the coverage between ESPN and its business partners is not going to be 100% fair and balanced. And, you know, sometimes people make that mistake, and John Skipper, you know, said this in his numerous statements and releases last week, talking about, oh, we had that report about Dr. Elliot Pellman on Outside the Lines a couple weeks ago, and yes, ESPN does criticize the NFL. ESPN does report some negative stories about the NFL because you have to keep some semblance of balance there. You can't have it go totally over the top because then all of your credibility is lost. And if ESPN's credibility is lost, the network is lost, and thus the NFL, 
uh, and, and, that, and thus that hurts the NFL because their Monday Night Football is on ESPN. So the NFL has a vested interest in keeping ESPN a relevant network. The NFL has a vested interest in keeping ESPN credible, just as Major League Baseball and the NBA do as well. So it's not going to be, you know, it, it, it's not going to be completely uh, biased coverage. It's not going to complete, be, be completely unfair. ESPN is going to criticize the NFL at times. It's going to criticize all of its business, business partners at times. They have to do that to keep the credibility for the network, but they're not going to totally attack their business partners. And this documentary may be a full-out attack from PBS and Frontline about the NFL's poor handling of head injuries. So it's complicated. It's not easy to explain. It's not easy to wrap your head around. I'm struggling to do it. But in my opinion, the central thing here is the NFL and the ESPN are partners. And ultimately, ESPN isn't going to do anything that severely damages the NFL. And it's really as simple as that. That's why the ESPN pulled out of this Frontline documentary. Everything else surrounding it is white noise. Now, speaking of white noise, that's a phrase I used earlier with Sal Capaccio in describing everything around the New York Jets because I think the central issue there is the GM and the coach don't see eye to eye. The general manager, John Idzik, did not hire Rex Ryan, who is in the final year of his contract. So thus, Idzik has a long-term vision for the Jets. Ryan has a painfully short-term vision for the Jets. And I say a painfully short-term vision because it's going to be painful with the way Rex Ryan coaches his team this year because he's going to coach for his job. And as I also said with Sal, let's say the Jets start off 3-5, and five, which I think could be a best-case scenario for them. You're going to have Idzik probably want Ryan to pull the plug on Mark Sanchez, insert the rookie Geno Smith, regardless of whether he's ready, and you're going to have Ryan say, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. We're 3-5. and five. We're not eliminated yet. We could be 8-8, eight 9-7. Eight, it's a weak AFC this year. We could still sneak in as a second wild card. We're trying to win every game. We're trying to run the table. And so it's going to be a, it's a massive problem for the Jets. It's the problem for the Jets. You cannot have a functioning organization in which the GM and the coach don't see eye to eye. That's the most important relationship in sports. So that's what everything comes down to with the Jets. But here in the third down segment, the big upper slowdown segment, we're talking about the Jets QB situation in particular. And the question is, big upper slowdown, is head coach Rex Ryan the biggest problem with the Jets quarterback situation? And I'm going to actually say, slow down here. In regards to the QB situation in particular, the fact that the Jets don't have a quarterback is their biggest problem there, not necessarily Rex Ryan, because you look at the guys who Rex Ryan has to go to. Mark Sanchez, Geno Smith, Greg McElroy, Matt Sims. I mean, that is a poo-poo platter of quarterbacks if I've ever seen one. And it's funny that the New York media is now in a position of defending Mark Sanchez, even though they've been calling for his head for two years. I mean, just last week, and let's give credit to Keith Olbermann, who on his debut show Monday night shined the light, uh, shined the light on this. Just last week, New York Daily News Jets reporter Manish Mehta was quote-unquote reporting that Geno Smith could be the starter. Then Mehta, a few days later, after Saturday night's preseason game, was calling for Ryan's head after Ryan put in Sanchez, who last week Mehta quote-unquote reported would be the backup in the fourth quarter of a preseason game. 
that's hypocritical because if Meta is quote-unquote reporting, and I put the reporting in quotations because I don't know what his sources were, who his sources were, if Meta is quote-unquote reporting that Smith may be the starter, then why is Rex Ryan a bonehead for putting in the backup Mark Sanchez in the fourth quarter of a preseason game? Isn't that when the backup quarterback would play in the third preseason game in the fourth quarter? Yes, it would be. Unless Meta's report was false, quote-unquote report, I'm sorry, was false and not based in truth, and actually Smith is would not be the starter, it would be Sanchez, and then, well, okay, Ryan deserves to be eviscerated because whether or not you think Mark Sanchez is a quality quarterback, and he certainly is not a quality quarterback, still, he's a starting quarterback, and you don't put your starter in the fourth quarter of a preseason game. So, which one is it? Is Geno Smith the starter? Does Geno Smith have a chance to be the starter? Or not? Reading all the reports from Jets camp, Smith has been an abomination this spring, and you saw him really struggle on Saturday night, three interceptions, running out of the end zone, awful, beyond awful, way worse than even Mark Sanchez could do. So it seems as if Sanchez is the best guy for the job, so then why did Rex Ryan put him in the fourth quarter? I have no idea. Maybe because Smith started that game against his will, they were down, and Ryan got you know all the bravado and gusto that comes along with him, said, oh, I'll show you, John Inzik, I'll show you. I'll put in Sanchez. He's my guy. We're going to win this game. Forgetting that, oh, it's the third preseason game at the end of August, and this doesn't really matter at all. Um, but what doesn't really matter at all, speaking of that phrase, is whether Sanchez or Smith or Sims or McElroy starts week one because all four quarterbacks stink, and the Jets aren't going to win with any of those four. So that is the problem with the Jets quarterback situation, the fact they don't have one, this Rex Ryan debacle and that press conference on Saturday certainly was a debacle. Um, that's a sexy storyline. It's something that'll keep the media occupied. But the real issue here with the Jets quarterback situation is they don't have one. Just like the real situation with the Jets is the fact that the head coach and the GM don't see eye to high. The head coach wasn't the GM's choice. And that's a central issue with the Jets, just as a central issue with the Jets' quarterbacking situation is they don't have one. Those are kind of cut-and-dry stories. They're not sexy, so a lot of the white noise will dominate early on this season with the Jets. But those are the two main reasons why the Jets uh, will struggle mightily this season. Now, question number two, big up or slow down. The NFLPA has filed a grievance on behalf of Aaron Hernandez. To force the Patriots to pay him $82,000 in offseason workout bonuses. The Patriots cut Hernandez on June 26th. Big up or slow down. Is the NFLPA uh, doing their job here? Is this a defensible act to force the Patriots file a grievance on behalf of Hernandez to force the Pats to pay him the $82,000 in workout bonuses? And I say big up. Yeah, this is a defensible act. The NFLPA issued a statement saying the union has filed the grievance to ensure the league isn't able to withhold money from other players in the future. And Hernandez is an alleged murderer, Odin Lloyd murder this summer, maybe a double homicide in Boston last summer. They recently recovered the gun from that murder. It's deplorable. It's despicable. It's the lowest of the low. But still, Hernandez was a union member up until this June. He was an active player in the league. And the NFLPA has a right, in fact, has an obligation to protect its members. Because you always worry 
about the slippery slope in instances like these. Hernandez is an alleged murderer. It's one of the worst crimes you can be charged with, obviously. So if an alleged murderer doesn't get his 82 grand in workout bonuses, I think everyone would be able to sleep at night. But what about if a player is caught for a lesser crime, like a DUI? And I'm not saying that DUI isn't severe. I've railed against DUIs on the past on this show and the hypocrisy that you can be suspended for testing positive for weed, but not for a DUI. So I'm not in any way undercutting the severity of DUI, but it's a lesser crime than murder. That's far. That's an obvious statement. So let's say a player is cut for DUI, blows something a little bit over, and a team cuts him. Can a team withhold the bonus money from that player? I mean, the Pats are withholding it from Hernandez, and if the NFLPA doesn't file a grievance on behalf of Hernandez, well, would they then be able to file a grievance on behalf of a player who got cut because of a DUI for some off-season bonus money? It's a slippery slope. You've got to treat every member the same. Hernandez was under contract with the Patriots this off-season. Hernandez should have been paid to go to the workouts he went to. It's a heinous crime. Murder. But Hernandez still has a right to his money. And whether we like it or not, if the NFLPA does not defend Hernandez here, or at least file a grievance on his behalf, they're not doing their job. And thus, it would set up a slippery slope for other players who may be cut from teams for a number of reasons. Final question here in the Big Upper Slowdown segment. Saints outside linebacker Will Smith will miss the rest of the season with a knee injury. Will this affect the Saints' playoff hopes? Now, last week I asked the same question in regards to the Broncos and their star outside linebacker Von Miller, who will be suspended through the first six games of the season. My answer there was no. Miller's suspension will not affect Denver's playoff aspirations. Uh, I think Smith's injury, though, will affect the Saints' playoff aspirations. So big up. Yes, it will. Smith would have been on the outside in Rob Ryan's 3-4 defensive scheme. He's the best player on that defense. We know about the hellacious passing attack Matt Ryan and the Atlanta Falcons have. And really, a defense like the Saints, a weak secondary, not a very strong linebacking core. Uh, the, real, the only chance they had to, to make any noise against the Falcons in their offense was to get to the quarterback, pressure Matt Ryan, force him into maybe a turnover or two. And the best chance for the Saints to do that is Will Smith. But obviously, he will not be a factor this season out for the year with a knee injury. So yes, this will affect the Saints' playoff aspirations. It will certainly affect them against their chief rival in the division, the Atlanta Falcons. So big up. This is a ma major, major blow to the Saints. And I think the biggest NFL story of the week thus far, and it ties into what we were talking about last week in the Reamer rant about all these injuries this preseason, statistically, the numbers may be similar to years past, but the caliber of player who is getting hurt is not similar to years past. You have Will Smith, the most recent example, but go back to the start of training camp with Dennis Pitta, Jeremy Macklin, Percy Harvin, uh, just a litany of other guys who have gone down this training camp. The NFL and the next CBA has to reevaluate how they run preseason, how they run training camp. I know, I know, there's no hitting now. Well, they may even have to go with less hitting because call me crazy, but the only way to further prevent injury is to, well, prevent the chance for injury. And the way you best prevent the chance to injury is to make as little hitting as possible. Uh, so that's obviously a story to watch for the long term, but for the short term, this season, yes, Will Smith 
out for the season, a major blow to New Orleans' playoff aspirations. But now, on the bright side, at least, Rob Ryan has another excuse in place for when his defense stinks. He had those excuses in Dallas. Team wasn't healthy. Team wasn't healthy. Well, now, he has a similar excuse here with the Saints. His best player, Will Smith, not healthy. So, it is a win for Rob Ryan. Now, closing out the show here at the Reamer Rant in the fourth down segment, I thought fantasy sports and fantasy football in particular uh, was incredibly geeky. You know, I thought these people just shut the shades, locked themselves indoors on some of the final nice summer days of the year, stuffed their faces with popcorn and potato chips, sat down in front of their laptops for hours on end, and picked these fantasy football teams in a number of leagues. And I thought, oh, these people, you know, I'm going to the beach, I'm sitting by a pool, I'm running around outside, I'm enjoying the final days of summer. And one way I will not be enjoying the final days in August is sitting in front of a computer picking a make-believe football team. Well, eh, not so fast. I'm not one of those people who spends one of the final days, the final nights of summer, sitting in front of his computer picking multiple, not just one, but multiple make-believe football teams in make-believe football leagues. But hey, there's money on the line. $25 in one, $15 in another. Big winnings. Not a lot of income for me right now, so it's big winnings that really matters. No, it really doesn't, but I still love it. I still love it, and it makes Sundays so much more fun. You get to check in on all the teams, get to check in on all your players, and you develop the most irrational hatreds when it comes to fantasy football. Last season, I hated Dwayne Bowe, had a huge hatred towards Dwayne Bowe. And the Chiefs were awful last year, and no one could throw Bo the ball. So Bo was a big name, but just a bust for me at receiver. And I'm already doing it. I'm doing what I railed against for years. I'm talking to you about my fantasy football team. Oh, I promise I'll stop. I promise I'll stop. You know, when Sal Capaccio said that Andre Johnson has a history of getting hurt midseason, I was a little nervous there. I said, oh, wait. I drafted Andre Johnson to be, to be my number one wideout on one of my teams. I was actually going to tell that to Sal. It was on the cusp of my mouth, uh, cusp of the tip of my tongue. But I said, wait a minute. That's about my fantasy football team. And nobody gives a rat's ass about that, but I just got to talk about it. Because it's a big part of my life. And it's a big draw of football. And it's football's dirty secret. We talk about gambling and the Vegas influence. But fantasy football too. What is the NFL's secret? Fans care about out-of-market games. Why do fans care about out-of-market games? They like the sport, okay. They have nothing to do on Sundays in the late fall and winter. Fine, okay. But why do they really care about out-of-market games? Because they're watching for their fantasy football team. In fact, if you were to pull some fans, they would maybe say they'd trade a loss for their favorite team. For a win for their fantasy football team. Because after all, money's riding on it, baby. And it's just one game. There are 16 of them. And I may be one of those people too. I may. If the Patriots are playing, oh, I don't know. The Bills in week one. I'll be pulling for the Pats. I'll be watching them. But I have CJ Spiller on one of my teams. And I'm counting on him to have a big year. So if C.J. Spiller happened to score a couple touchdowns, 150, 200 yards in total, I wouldn't be too upset. Pats would probably still win, but if they didn't, it's just one game. They got the Jets in week two. 
that mess of a quarterback situation. They'll get him then if they don't get the bills in week one. It's addicting. It's why you care about out-of-market games. It's the NFL's big secret. And I removed myself from the culture for a long time. In fact, I refused to even participate in it. Took many years off from fantasy football. But I'm back in and back in big. And now I see the draw. And really, I can't explain why. Tuning in to Football Nation today, episode number 59. Again, thanks go out to Sal Capaccio of WGR Sports Radio, 5.50 a.m. in Buffalo for taking the time joining me on the show this week. As always, feel free to leave a comment on our show page right here on footballnation.com. Also feel free to send me an email, areamer at bu.edu is my email address. Or also feel free to follow me on Twitter, at alexreamer1 is my Twitter handle. So long, everybody. Thank you for listening. Enjoy your Labor Day holiday weekend. We'll be back next Wednesday on Football Nation today for the 2013 NFL season preview. If you've just been dying to know who I have coming out of the NFC, who I have coming out of the AFC, who I have as my Super Bowl champion in New York, where, oh, by the way, Farmer's Almanac says there will be an 80% chance of snow at the Super Bowl this year. You're just dying to know how I will prognosticate the upcoming NFL season. You will have to wait no longer. Next Wednesday is the Football Nation Today 2013 NFL season preview. So long, everybody. We'll talk to you then. Can't wait.